From WGCU News, this is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. The recent special congressional election in Alaska has drawn national attention to an election method called Ranked Choice Voting, or RCV. Alaska voters approved an initiative to establish a Ranked Choice Voting general election system during the 2020 general election, and this was the first time it's been used. Ranked Choice Voting allows voters the option to rank candidates in a race in order of their preference. If a candidate receives more than half of the first choices in the first round, that candidate wins outright, just like in any other election. But if there is no majority winner after counting the first choices, the race is decided by an instant runoff using the second choices and the third choices, etc. Currently in the U.S., 56 cities, counties, and states have ranked choice voting in place, reaching approximately 11 million voters. This includes two states, one county, and 53 cities. Military and overseas voters cast RCV ballots in federal runoff elections in six states, and 43 jurisdictions used RCV RCV in their most recent elections. Ranked choice voting advocates say it can help us move away from our partisan divide and encourage more civil election campaigns and save money by eliminating the need for runoff elections. Critics call the system convoluted and claim it disenfranchises voters. In order to get some history and context, I spoke on Friday with Chris Hughes. He's director of policy and counsel for the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center. It's a division of the Election Administration Resource Center a nonpartisan nonprofit organization that provides information, research, and tools to teach the public about ranked choice voting. Let's hear that conversation now. Chris, thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So for starters, just tell us about your work with the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center. Like what's the mission of the center and you know where do you fit into that uh, system? Sure. So the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center uh, is we're a nonpartisan nonprofit that studies how ranked choice voting works, how voters use it, how election administrators, the people running elections, how they run ranked choice voting elections, um, just so that we can identify best practices, how to do it well, how to do it better, and how to make it so that when one adoption goes well, when one implementation goes well, more cities, more states can adopt ranked choice voting in the future too. Understood. We'll get to how it works in a little bit, but let's start with a bit of history. Um, as I understand it, uh, ranked choice voting was sort of first invented and used in Europe in the mid-1800s. Can you kind of pick it up from there? Yeah, that's right. So ranked choice voting was invented actually two separate times by some academics in uh, in Europe in the mid-1800s. A Danish mathematician and uh, some British mathematicians both thought of the idea separately about a couple decades apart. And that's where it got its start. It was used in a few different legislative elections in Denmark uh, and used briefly in some other elections, I believe in the UK around that same time. After that, uh, it sort of laid dormant for a couple decades as an idea. But then in the late 1800s and early 1900s, it started really taking off in the United States and in Australia. Um, Both countries were sort of experiencing the U.S. was, of course, going through the um, the progressive era, the response to the um, the Gilded Age of the late 1800s. There was this huge explosion of civic engagement and in political reform. And Australia was experiencing a similar sort of democratic revolution um, as they got independence from the U.K. And so cities across the U.S. and uh, states across Australia started using ranked choice voting to elect their 
city councils, to elect state legislatures. Uh, Tasmania in Australia was the first place to use ranked choice voting for a legislature. Um, and that's how it's really got its start. Uh, for a few decades in the US, it just kept growing. There came a point where there were about two dozen cities across the United States in Oregon, in Massachusetts, in my home state of Ohio, um, in a few places in California, in Michigan, that used ranked choice voting to elect their city councils. Um, and the thing is, it did what it said it would do. It was adopted to sort of fight back against the power of party bosses, people who had this stranglehold on local politics, and it was adopted to improve racial and uh, political representation. So in a lot of cities, that meant <laughs> at the time, Italian Americans, Greek Americans, other Eastern European ethnicities, as well as African Americans were sort of considered this, considered races outside of whiteness. And they managed to win seats in these ranked choice voting elections in Cleveland, where I'm from, in Coos Bay, Oregon, in cities across Massachusetts. And that increase in racial representation and an increase in political representation in a essentially more representation for Democrats in cities, for Republicans in cities, for moderates in cities that undermined the power of party bosses created this two-tailed backlash. Some white communities in these cities reacted really strongly to what they perceived of as other outsiders, like at that time, Italian-Americans and African-Americans winning seats and were very unhappy about that. And party bosses also were obviously unhappy about losing some of their power at being undermined by this more representative, more democratic form of election of using ranked choice voting for city councils. So unfortunately for after, you know, three or four decades of cities using this method, 23 of the 24 cities that adopted ranked choice voting from the 1910s to the 1940s all repealed it. The only city left standing at the end of the 1950s uh, was Cambridge, Massachusetts. They adopted it in 1941 and actually still use it. They just celebrated their 80th anniversary of using ranked choice voting last year. What were so that's the oh sorry that's the cliff notes. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's great. Um, what were the people who were pushing to repeal it? What were the arguments they were making? It really it came down to a few different things. One was actually a lot of racial dog whistling, saying, "Are you sure you want these people? You know, these people in quotes." representing you on on the council. But it also uh, reflected or revolved around um, a thought that, you know, there were ironically arguments being made by party bosses that these councils were corrupt when the point of proportional ranked choice voting, the point of the way the method works is to root out that corruption and party bosses themselves were sort of the embodiment of the corruption, but they still had that hook. Um, and they also did argue frequently that the councils still just weren't responsive, weren't effective at doing their jobs. Because to be perfectly frank, when party bosses ran councils, they could get whatever they wanted done. And so councils tended to run pretty efficiently, but they weren't very democratic. And in proportional ranked choice voting, when you had all these different constituencies, all these different ideas at the table, it took a little more time to legislate, but it also meant more people were represented in the ultimate proposals, the ultimate things adopted, were actually more reflective of the community at large. 
you know, it is being used in some places around the United States. Um, we've heard about it recently because of the uh, special election in Alaska. Um, how commonly is it being used or how widely is it being used elsewhere around the world at this point in time? So right now, it's actually it's used in a few other countries. It's used almost exclusively in places that are English speaking, places that were colonized by the UK. So Australia uses it countrywide for pretty much every election they hold. Ireland and Northern Ireland both use it for local elections and for their parliamentary elections, as does Scotland. Um, the, the one more sort of exotic place that uses it is Malta. They use it for their legislature. Malta is a small island south of Italy in the Mediterranean. Um, those are the major places that are using it. A few other countries, Sri Lanka, India, ooh, and Papua New Guinea have used it in one-off cases, but don't use it for many of their elections. Those are the major places that are using it now outside of the United States. Gotcha. Okay, so now we've got some history um, and a bit of where it's being used. Let's talk about how it works. So explain, you know, like you're at a cocktail party and you want to say to somebody, this is a kind of voting system and this is the most simple way to explain it. Yeah, so I always start by talking about how it works for the voter. What it means to the voter is instead of just voting for one candidate at a time, you get to rank them in order of preference. Imagine you have this, this grid in front of you with rows for candidates' names, columns for rankings. You get to rank however many candidates there are, however many rankings you have, you rank candidates in order of preference. First, second, third, as many as you can stand. Some people only can stand one candidate, they only rank one. Other people, you know, maybe can stomach a few more candidates, they might rank three, four, or five. So there's no requirement to rank them all. You can, you can no, rank you, as many yeah, as you want. Gotcha. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that's how it works for the voter. Where uh, things are really different is in how votes get counted. Right now, we just count up the votes. Whoever gets you know the most votes, whether that's 30%, whether that's 50%, they win. In ranked choice voting, you have to get a majority to win. And the way you get to that majority is first you count up all the first choices. If anybody has a majority of first choices, then the election's over. You know, we found someone who more than 50% of voters prefer and want. If nobody gets a majority, you eliminate whoever is in last place and transfer the votes from that candidate to whoever was ranked next on each of those ballots. And it's all based on what those voters ranked. Um, and so those votes transfer. Again, if nobody has a majority, we continue counting. If somebody does get a majority after those votes transfer, then again, the election ends. That's the basics. We count up first choices, eliminate whoever's in last, transfer votes, check if someone has a majority. Are specialized voting systems required to handle this kind of voting? Uh, nothing beyond what we're already using in, in our election systems. The um, the scanners that are at polling places can scan in ranked choice voting data, and then that data can be counted by software provided by the voting system vendors and by organizations like us. We have open source software that can count ranked choice voting data because we think, you know, given that it's a new method, given that it's a little more innovative, we should, our software, our technology should be more innovative too, which is why we've made our software open source. And it would be just as auditable as a uh, normal plurality election would be? Yeah, exactly as auditable. Uh, we actually just held a webinar about this uh, on Thursday, yesterday, uh, the day before we are recording this interview, uh, talking all about auditing ranked choice voting elections. Uh, so explain the sort of the rationale behind it or, you know, what are the benefits that advocates say, you know, it has? 
So there's a few. The The big one, of course, is this majority winner, this consensus candidate argument. You want to be able to find somebody who represents the most of the community, right? A lot of times in American elections, we wind up with somebody who wins with a plurality, who wins with less than 50% of the vote. And sometimes that means, you know, maybe that person only represents the 40% of voters who voted for them. And the other 60% of voters got split up between two or three different candidates who are similar enough that they polled votes for each other, that they acted as spoilers in the election. Ranked choice voting gets rid of that spoiler effect. It allows you to consolidate around a candidate who more people prefer, who better represents the community. That's the big one that people, that we find people really respond to. And I think that is, you know, most responsive to the conditions we're in right now in American democracy. The other reasons too are Uh, to eliminate primary elections or runoff elections. Primaries and runoffs always have much lower turnout than the general election, the one that tends to happen in November, and but they cost just as much to run. And so adopting ranked choice voting means you can eliminate those and just find one candidate in one election who represents voters the best as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible. The third, the third big reason we've heard from people is increased civility. Because ranked choice voting encourages you to campaign not just for first choices, but for second, third, or later choices, it means that candidates can't just tear each other down. It can't just be a bunch of mudslinging. They need to be able to find the connections that, yes, they have with their core base of supporters, but also what connects them to the other candidates in the race. How can you get second choices from your opponent's supporters? How can you get third choices? That encourages more creative and more solutions-driven campaigning so that you can get those second and third choices so that you can have a core base of support while also getting broad-based community support as well. Um, Is there um, evidence that can be pointed to from jurisdictions in the United States or places around the world that using this kind of voting system does lead to Um, less partisanship, more civil elections, that sort of thing? There have been a few studies done of this asking voters, what did you think? Did ranked choice voting make your campaigns more civil? And every single one, they weren't saying like, wow, nobody ever said anything negative about the other candidates. But voters overall found, came out of the election feeling better. They found that it was just, there was less tearing down of the other candidates, people felt sort of more empowered by the election. They felt that it had been more issues driven as opposed to just entirely about pulling each other down. I'm not sure if this is a a question that even makes sense, but I'm going to ask, how does ranked choice voting interact with or maybe possibly impact uh, gerrymandering and its effects? So this is an interesting question. There's the important thing to for people to know is that there's actually two kinds of ranked choice voting. The kind I've been talking about is single winner ranked choice voting used to elect people from districts. You know, if you're electing ward members in your council, if you're electing members of Congress, that you're electing one person at a time. Single winner ranked choice voting isn't going to totally revolutionize or change gerrymandering there because ultimately gerrymandering is about drawing lines effectively around and ultimately is about politicians picking their voters and putting themselves into place. Single winner ranked choice voting makes the ultimate campaign for that seat. Ideally more civil, it should find the best possible representative for that district. But the thing that will really change 
gerrymandering that will really fight against the power of the single member district of the ability of a politician to draw a line for themselves to win is adopting proportional ranked choice voting. That's the kind that was more broadly used in the early 20th century. Um, and the way it works is instead of just electing one person at a time, you elect three, four, five, up to nine. Cambridge elects nine at a time. That's a lot of people at a time. Uh, but the most recent proposals in the US have suggested between three and five candidates at once from a single district. And essentially the way it works is instead of needing to get a majority of votes, each candidate needs to get some share of all votes cast. If you're electing three people at once, every voter or every candidate, sorry, needs to get 25% of the vote. Um, that ensures that a majority group will have a majority of seats. Say you're in a 60% Democrat, 40% Republican district, and you're electing three people at once. If you're electing three people using proportional ranked choice voting, you'll get two Democrats and one Republican. And that way you have, you're actually capturing, you know, 75% of voters in the jurisdiction instead of just one person. In a normal election in that same area, you would probably elect one Democrat and leave Republicans entirely unrepresented. Proportional ranked choice voting sort of expands the pool by making it easier for smaller groups, smaller communities to win seats while still awarding decision-making power, majority power to the majority group. Hmm. I'd like to take a moment to reintroduce our guest. Chris Hughes is Director of Policy and Counsel for the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center. We're getting an overview of this different kind of voting system that advocates say can help us move away from our partisan divide as well as save money by eliminating the need for runoff elections. If you'd like to engage with the show and fellow listeners about this conversation, just look for the post for this episode on WGCU social media. We're on Facebook and we're on Twitter. Just use the hashtag GCL. So this recent election in Alaska... Um, it made some headlines. Is this maybe the most attention ranked choice voting has gotten in this country for some time? Yeah, yeah I'd say so. So <laughs> Alaska just used it right for their special election about a month ago now. And it's, in my experience, definitely the most attention it's ever received op-eds across the country in the Washington Post, in the New York Times, obviously a ton of press attention in Alaska. Fox News was talking about it. CNN was talking about it. It's been uh, <laughs> I've, I've never seen ranked choice voting splashed across the news like this before. Do you think it's, uh, it's that's a good good or bad thing? Because, um, you know, I pulled a quote from uh, uh, U.S. Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas. He said, quote, 60 percent of Alaska voters voted for a Republican, but thanks to a convoluted process and ballot exhaustion, which disenfranchises voters, a Democrat won. So he's characterizing it as something um, bad that has disenfranchised voters in Alaska. Um, you know, is that the kind of headline that's going to make it harder for this to be something that's implemented or or not? I think it depends on who you ask. I think for some people, Tom Cotton's opinion really matters. And for some people, frankly, it doesn't. I'd say the thing, overall, the thing that has been interesting for me, I've been doing ranked choice voting for about six years now, is I no longer have to explain everything about it to people. People will generally be like, oh, I've heard of that. Whereas in 2015, when I started doing ranked choice voting, people had no, no idea what I was talking about. So it, we've at least gotten to a point where people know how to start the conversation about ranked choice voting. I do also think that given how politics works in America, the risk is always going to be there that it becomes polarized, that because it's a reform to our democracy, it's a change to how we vote, 
it's going to, there's certain people who are just going to immediately be opposed to it. And I think it's incumbent on organizations like us and like Fair Vote and other organizations in the ranked choice voting space to continue to make the case that this is a, an election method that is about empowering voters. It's not about empowering the parties. It's about giving voters greater choice and a louder voice in their elections. And I think that's what happened in Alaska. Tom Cotton's point that 60% of voters voted for a Republican is based on first choices. And he's right. 60% of voters ranked either Nick Begich, who's, uh, I, from what I understand, originally from Florida, moved to Alaska a few years ago, has the Begich family name, and Sarah Palin, who everyone knows, about 60% of voters ranked one of those two Republicans first. Another 40% or so ranked uh, Mary Paltola, who is the Democrat in the race, first instead. Because Nick Begich came in last place in first choices, he got eliminated and all, all of his voters had their votes transferred to their second choice. A lot of those voters, about 50% of them, ranked uh, Sarah Palin second, which, you know, makes sense, but that's, they're both Republicans and having only 50% of votes for one Republican go to another is pretty low. I'd expect a much higher transfer rate. And I think it indicates that Sarah Palin is a polarizing person in Alaska. Mary Paltola got 30% of Nick Begich's votes. 30% of votes going from a Republican to a Democrat is, to me, huge. That's a lot of people who really, who wanted to vote for a Republican, but felt they preferred a Democrat to Sarah Palin. And that, to me, is honestly proof of the value of ranked choice voting. It shows that, you know, voters, I think voters understood what they were doing. They knew who they preferred between Sarah Palin and Mary Paltola. And it empowered them to be honest about that and to ultimately choose a person who they felt represented them better because Sarah Palin, again, is a very, very polarizing figure. And ranked choice voting doesn't encourage and doesn't reward polarizing behavior. Um, I looked at the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center's website, and there's a map that shows where it's being used across the country. And I was sort of surprised to see a star in southwest Florida here because apparently voters in the city of Sarasota approved a referendum in 2007 to implement ranked choice voting. But here, 15 years later, it's still listed as pending implementation. What can you tell us about that situation? Yeah, so the city of Sarasota adopted it, like you said, about 15 years ago. Um, and in that time, they've run into a lot of trouble trying to get it implemented, trying to get voting systems certified, approved by the state for use for ranked choice voting. They had trouble navigating state election law um, just because there's, <laughs> like in any state in Florida, there's a lot of hoops to jump through to run an election. Um, and, you know, those hoops exist for a reason. You want to make sure your results are trustworthy, but it just made it harder for Sarasota to navigate all of that to implement ranked choice voting. And ultimately, unfortunately, last year, uh, there was a big bill passed through the Florida legislature regulating all sorts of elections policies in the state. And there was a one line addition to that bill that also bans ranked choice voting in the state of Florida. So right now, cities in the state of Florida, counties in the state of Florida, are not permitted to implement ranked choice voting. So right now, Sarasota needs to find a way, activists in ranked choice in uh, Florida need to find a way to uh, undo that state law before they can make any more forward progress in Sarasota or elsewhere in the state. 
you know, I asked you before, you know, when the repeal efforts in the mid 20th century were happening, sort of what the, the criticisms were, um, are they the same criticisms today? Like what are the arguments against it in our obviously polarized world where election integrity has become something we're all focusing on? Yeah, well, so one of the big ones we hear is that voters don't understand it. We normally hear that before adoption, but we continue to hear it after adoption too. But all the data shows that one, when voters use the ballot, they use it accurately. You know, they use it just as effectively as they use any other ballot. Um, and exit polls, voters always report that they understand ranked choice voting, but that remains a big point of critique with the method. Other arguments against it are, I mean, in in Florida, there wasn't much of a debate. This line sort of appeared out of nowhere, but a lot of it does come down to um, some more partisan arguments saying XYZ people are trying to steal elections from us. They're trying to impose these rules to get a result that they want. And sometimes that, that message sticks. Other times it doesn't. But what we've seen is when it does stick, when people feel like somehow ranked choice voting is failing to represent the will of the people when that's what it's meant to be doing, that has that has led to a few repeals. Though it's been pretty rare. You know, there's been three repeals in the last 20 years and 50 adoptions. Um, would it be fair to say that election administrators, secretary of states, the people who are involved with choosing election systems are like extremely reluctant to make fundamental changes like what ranked choice voting represents? Yeah, I mean, that's half the reason the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center exists is because election administrators, election officials, just get nervous about how to do this effectively. Because in in my experience, implementing ranked choice voting, while obviously it's it's a lift, you have to do work to make it happen. It's not a revolution in how we run elections. However, it totally changes the sort of information you need to give to voters. It changes everything about how you design your ballot. It changes how you tell voters how to mark the ballot. It changes how you display results and how you produce results. And that is a big that's a big task of educating all your voters and all your election officials and your administrators about how this works and making them feel comfortable with it. That's why we exist to help people with that transition to make it a little more approachable, make it feel less overwhelming. But that's definitely a thing we've encountered again and again is just this skepticism of, well, do voters really understand it? Will we really be able to run this? And I mean, I think election administrators are professionally skeptical because they have to be extremely precise and really careful with running elections. They're a very delicate process. Um, and they bring that skepticism to ranked choice voting, which just means we have to be really clear and really good at communicating how it works and how to do it effectively. Um, would it even be possible for ranked choice voting to be used for a presidential election or like where would the electoral college fit in? You know, is that even a, a thing that could happen, you think? I think it could. It's a great question. Maine has adopted ranked choice voting statewide, and they'll be using it for the presidential election in 2024. If there's, you know, more than three serious candidates running, they'll be using it to award their electoral college delegates. There's debates uh, going around about using it in more presidential primaries, because those are sort of where there's so many serious candidates running. It can be, you can have a lot of vote splitting. Ranked choice voting would help you consolidate around you know, a specific candidate. Um, and I've heard some discussion of it in presidential elections, but honestly, it's, I would say that's still sort of waiting in the wings. There's been way more focus on 
adopting it for Congress, adopting it for senatorial elections, and adopting it for like local and state elections as well. Um, last question. Do you see ranked choice voting as something that's picking up momentum uh, or stagnant or moving backwards? I, I think it's really picking up momentum, especially <laughs> I think we'll see exactly what happens after the November election this fall. Um, because again, Alaska's using it statewide, Maine's using it again statewide. So we'll, it'll be interesting to see how people react to that. But there's 10 ballot measures across the country. Nevada has a statewide ballot measure. A number of cities, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, um, Evanston, Illinois, places across the country are, are voting on ranked choice voting. And I think it feels like there's a lot of momentum behind it right now. And I think we'll really get a sense of that after this election and in the legislative session if some, some more bills pass in January and February of next year. All right. Well, we are out of time. So I want to thank my guest. Chris Hughes is Director of Policy and Counsel for the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center. Chris, thanks so much for taking some time and explaining this all to us. Thanks, Mike. You can find links to more information about Ranked Choice Voting, including a map and PDF that shows where it's being used in the U.S. on our website, wgcu.org gcl. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Callaghan. Now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.